wishes that all TV station anniversaries could be like Granada's 1981 effort, Hey, It's My Birthday 2. Once again, we're going to be taking a look at many similar things that one or two people might remember, and everyone else thinks, what on earth are you talking about? And joining me for a second time is Ben Baker. Ben, I've asked you this before. What are you up to and where can we find it? I'm on here because I'm a fan of the show, Tim, as you know. But I do have a book out, funnily enough, called Your Starter for Ben. It's a quiz book for all the family. It's on Lulu Press. Just search Ben Berkey, Your Starter for Ten. Uh, ben, even, can't even say the name of my own thing. I'm at that Ben Baker on Twitter. There you go. At the moment, it seems to be basically offensive things from the TV Times of, from the past. Well, depending on your interpretation of offensive things from the TV Times from the past, your first choice could fall into that bracket. Ready in the gallery. Toxic. <laughs> glittering edition of Toxvig, as I bring that little bit of magic into your otherwise drab and dreary lives. You'll be astounded as we reveal the truth about what animals like to eat. Ta-da! Oh, Sandy. The fish stinks not now. Ben, a familiar voice, but possibly not a familiar programme. What was that? That was Toxvig. It was a children's ITV show from 1988 and was basically what she did after number 73, after she'd left that. We did briefly discuss Saturday morning programmes in the previous episode, but number 73 was on the other side and it was one of the better offerings, I'd say, post-Tiz was. But yeah, number 73 went on for a number of years and also had Iggy Pop once on as a guest, which caused a lot of trouble. See, the thing with number 73, it was unique in that it was pre-recorded, so it wasn't like live there wasn't phone-ins or anything like that. They had kids in the studio who would take part in the sandwich game and stuff like that. There were guests in there, but it was a house. And it was kind of a sitcom, but downstairs they had bands on and, you know, they had various rooms for different things. And Neil Buchanan was one of them, and Andrew Arnold, who's now one of Britain's leading directors. Well, you know what I've only just realised about it? It's never occurred to me before. Do you know what? Totally, completely ripped off number 73, Lock, Stock and Barrel. The Big Breakfast. It's the same programme. That had never occurred to me before. Uh, not a million miles away. I'm sure there's a lot of TVS obsessives. Because there does seem to be. Because this this is also a TVS programme we're talking about. TVS was a station, Television South. That Do you want to tell people how, what the actual... Why you can't see anything by TBS. Yeah, I mean, ITV regions, when they lose their franchise, when they, have the, when they used to have a franchise reshuffle every so often, but basically there is just ITV now, but there used to be different companies for each region. Not many of them lasted the distance, and those that didn't, generally, you know, they were bought out as business interests, and their archive got sold on some stations. Nobody knows what happened to their archive, like... Associated Rediffusion, who made a lot of shows in the 60s. There's very little of their stuff around. But the thing with TVS was it somehow ended up in the hands of Disney. And at some point, somewhere down the line... Now, nobody's quite sure what happened. Either the paperwork has been lost for all the programmes or the paperwork's been junked. Whatever happened, there is no paperwork. Nobody can work out who has to get clearance from who to release what, who has to pay royalties to who for things. So that's why phenomenally popular shows like Cat's Eyes aren't on DVD. And the UK Fraggle Rock as well. Whenever you see it now, it's always the American one. It's because they can't work out what percentage they've got to pay to Simon (laughs) O'Brien. But yeah, it's it's an astonishing situation. The number 73. It sounds a bit odd to say, oh, you never see number 73, but it's one of those shows that gets talked about that people remember where you think there would be clips of it on everything all the time and there never is there is a lot of clips on youtube but i believe 
TVS bought MTM, the Mary Tyler Moore's production company, and made her programs and Lou Grant and all that sort of things. And then Disney bought them, and there was some weird hostile takeover. I don't know. But Toxwig, I don't know if that comes under this same junta. I'm assuming that was TVS, actually. I think it was, because I think it was in the, the same vein as Kelly Vision, which was a very similar Matthew Kelly program, which was TVS. It was indeed. Basically... It was, there was a lot of still of the japes and Sandy Toxvic uh, wasn't playing Ethel as she was on number 73. She was just herself and she was in charge of this programme and of course things didn't go according to plan and no one paid attention to her. And she had like a posh sidekick who didn't do very much and some younger ones who would kind of bodge things. And it was part comedy and part sort of social issues, I guess, sort of more. The punk poet Jules is on, I think she's in every episode. Really? Yeah. Well, Actually, Benjamin Zephaniah was on a Derek called Beetle around that time. So, no, a Beetle called Derek even. <laughs> get, get, your, get your rubbish programmes right, Tim. Yeah, so maybe it was maybe it's a thing of having sort of prop poets on things. I don't know. But this specifically, and it was, it was about the same time as Gilbert's Fridge, which I toyed with. Again, another Saturday morning spin-off from Get Fresh, Gilbert the Alien. But I think he's still very well remembered. What's quite odd, really, is that I've got a vague feeling that at the time, Sandy Toxvig was, you know, obviously she wasn't Rick and Abe, French and Saunders, but she was viewed as being kind of on the very, very fringes of alternative comedy. She was seen, I think, possibly through, you know, kind of Stephen Fry, What's-His-Face... I can't remember his name, Tony Slattery Association. God, good Lord, I forgot Tony Slattery's name. He used to be on everything. But doesn't that make a quite an unusual choice for children's TV? I mean, there was a People forget there was a lot of controversy about Rick Mayle doing Jack and Ori. It was seen as a step too far. There is one episode in full on YouTube, which I'm very grateful for. But it wasn't the one that really freaked me out as a kid, which I vividly remember there was an episode which was based around spontaneous combustion. It was, it was, a, it was a running joke throughout it, you know. And it was the first time I'd heard of this. And suddenly the idea that someone would suddenly just explode, which is kind of how it was presented in a comedy fashion, freaked the shit out of me. Okay, can I point out that in another podcast you've also said that for some reason you thought E.T. was a man who exploded and went inside out. What was it with you with explosions? I don't know. So I'm hoping that there wasn't any exploding in your next choice, which is represented by this. Salafaire à Pékin. Un meurtre. Un coupable introuvable, des faux témoignages, des messages codés. Bref, mon enquête piétinée. Seul le sage pouvait m'aider. J'avais trouvé. C'était Charlie le meurtrier. Les mystères de Pékin, un jeu MB. Yeah, I am not liking the overtones of that one bit. Ben, what was that? That was representing a 1987 board game. Mysteries of Old Peking. It's Cluedo, set in Chinatown, effectively, but it had some quite neat little angles to it. There was like a red filter thing to look at some clues. There was a mirror that you could only see certain clues in, and you only got those cards and you had to work out who did it. So it was it was a fun game. It's just a bit massively stereotypical. Yeah, I mean, that was really... You know, there's this idea that in the 80s everything was right on and all that was stamped out, but it still sort of lingered on into the 80s a bit, in often quite unpleasant ways. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that the pyramid up there was the most enlightened thing in the world. <laughs> there was that... 
dandy annual that really bothered me where his, he knocked his neighbour out by accident with a doorknob his neighbour fell in some black paint and woke up and said I'm going back to where I belong Wongo Bongo Land there was all all this stuff was still around mm. and you know it's the stuff that like you know idiots are now saying oh, why can't we say that anymore because it was unpleasant and it wasn't funny would that describe this board game I mean, you said it was quite fun but do you ever feel you know this isn't right while you're playing at the time I'll be honest and said no I think I got this I got this as an Easter present from my uncle in 1990 so it came out originally in 87 so it must have been cheap somewhere basically what you do is you get uh, rather than like Cluedo you get a selection of culprits on a card and they all have guess who style attributes and you have to work out from the clues which one it was uh, would you like to know what the 12 uh, possible suspects were called I don't think I would like to know but go on who me Dun Wong oh slyly seesaw we won I'm assuming that's the guy from the Cheers title sequence. Sing song, Handy, Archie. Archie? What is that, Simon Bates? He doesn't look that dissimilar, actually. Tee hee, scheming, so long, and fooding. And they've all got little pointy hats. Yeah, I, I, I don't need you to, to point that out to me. I kind of worked that out already. But it's a shame because it sounds like one of the very first of those kind of high concept games. You know, the sort of things that led to things like Key to the Kingdom and Atmosphere, you know, where there were sort of interactive elements to them. Is that is that about right? So, and was it kind of a precursor to things like Professor Layton and, well, the Escape the Room things that you get to do in real life now? I suppose, yeah. I mean, I mean it's very low-key, but there's like a spy card and you put that against the card and it basically shows letters. It like blocks out all but the important letters and there's a mirrored one, I said, a red piece of sort of uh, plastic that you can really read through. And Yeah, it's annoyingly good fun. But don't worry because I've had a look and apparently it is still available. <laughs> I don't know if it's been changed any. It was renamed to Mysteries of Old Chinatown for a bit. Yeah, that's not much better. Okay, well, from Mysteries of Old Peking, I'm wondering if Ho-Ho, the Ruth Rendell Mysteries, will feature in your next choice. TV Quick. For your week's TV, just the way you like it. Still only 10p. Okay, well, that was an advert promoting the launch of TV Quick in 1991. Yeah, I'm disappointed. I mean, all of the magazine reworkings. I mean, nothing beats Suggs doing Full House. And puzzles all for 40p. Well, can I just stop you? Because you're sounding like you're actually editing, promoting your own listings magazine. And basically, that's your next choice, isn't it? It is, making your own TV listings. I've no idea, because this is kind of a personal thing, if, if anyone else did this. They will crawl out of the woodwork now, you mark my words. Oh, please do. I'd love to hear on Twitter, say, at that Ben Baker, from people who genuinely used to do this, because I'm totally obsessive. I mean, it's been pretty apparent from these podcasts and from every podcast I've ever done I've always had sort of one eye on the box so to speak and I always used to make comics as well I used to love getting lots of A4 sheets and folding them sometimes it would be like 72 pages and I'd be like I'm gonna fill them as comics and they never did I like did the cover and like maybe an editor's page and I started drawing a comic strip I'm like I don't want to do this anymore can I just check did you start doing the comic strip without a plot a joke or a real character in mind of course, yeah. 
of course. But it is. how did this transmute into television listings? Well, it was the same thing. He used to fold up bits of paper and he used to make what I would call fantasy listings, I suppose, you know, of if I was in control of telly, what I'd want. So it was a lot of cartoons, a lot of comedy. But I think I was very inspired by Now On 2. Do you remember that slot on Sunday mornings on BBC 2? Because there wasn't anything like... There was children's BBC, but then I remember once my dad putting the television on on a Sunday and the Charlie Brown and Snoopy show was on. And it was like, what's this? BBC 2, one, don't show cartoons in the morning unless they're of a Czechoslovakian end up hot keck variant. And it was like, and it turns out it was this slot which felt like kind of almost secret. In some yeah, because they also had things like they had an omnibus of the week's Blue Peters. They had repeats of whatever the drama was at that point. You know, things like the Cuckoo Sister and so on. Yeah, they also had shit like Popeye and Son. But probably the crown jewel of now on too was Box Pops, which used to be on... It was sort of like the end of the slot, like quarter past 11, half past 11-ish. And it basically used to be... It's a follow-up to a similar program called Windmill with Chris Searle, and basically they'd have a topic and then lots of clips from the BBC archives, and not even BBC, you know, across the board, and songs and stuff. And so I got to see all these little clips and stuff, and I was like, you used to get obsessed with the idea of like, ooh, that'd be good, I'd like to see that, and I'd like, and I think that's partly what played into it as well, this whole fantasy listings idea. Well, I was going to say, were they all real programmes, or did you make any up? Oh yeah, no, there was some made up. I mean, at the time, the comics I was making usually were called Gavin's Gang. I was making comics, and I didn't even make myself the main character in them. I was in them as a secondary character to Gavin, who was a lad who lived down the road. I suppose, like, kind of like you had the DJ Cat Show and Fun Factor and stuff like that in the early days of Sky. I remember being particularly obsessed with a program called Chromazone, which was on Nickelodeon, which used to show the uh, first run Red and Stimpies. And I just liked the idea of a block of stuff. I suppose that's why Saturday morning programmes appealed. You weren't sure what was coming up and I, I don't know, I guess I like the idea of being the one who controlled when things were on. But can I just point out you could have said that, you know, it's the same sort of idea they later use in the BBC Two theme nights and Channel 4's late licence on, but no, you compared yourself to DJ Cat. You are not going to live that down for a long time. That is skills and also, to be fair, I was too young to appreciate and now I've looked back and seeing all the themes nights that used to run Channel 4 in the 80s for example, ATV night and uh, a night in the 60s Dope night, don't forget that and it's just like, oh that's brilliant and I used to do these, so I used to do listings a lot, so I've always, I always used to have a a notebook or as I say, lots of folded paper, I remember I used to go to like, on a weekend you'd get dragged to your uncles or grandmas or you know, various places and I'd be sort of doing, and I wouldn't show what I was doing because my dad found out and he thought it was weird. So I used to have to hide it. So if any of them's actually survived? No, sadly not. But I mean, it, it would have been a lot of things sort of, we're talking, if we're talking like 1988, 89, which a lot of today's programme seems to have been so far, it would definitely have been stuff like ALF and The Wonder Years. Oh, The Real Ghostbusters. I think I probably just would have had probably about five hours of the real Ghostbusters in prime time. I, I didn't even know for years why they were called the real Ghostbusters. It'd be fascinating to know if anyone else used to do that. And I wish I did still have some. Yeah, so if you did do your own TV listings, and we're looking at you here, Steve Williams, please do get in touch and let us know what some of the listings actually were. But you said this was sort of like the late 80s, 88-ish. If you'd been doing it a couple of years earlier, I'm betting you would have had this in. Oh, and I take, I take those. Yes. And I take that one is mine. Oh. <laughs> and that ain't whiskey. 
I'm going to show you something that you've never seen before. What? No human being has ever set eyes on it before. Here is a peanut, right? Yeah. Break it open like that. Now, that nut has never been seen before. Okay, well that was a clip from the WizKids Guide, the early 80s children's ITV series which, funnily enough, actually came up in Mark Thompson's one when we're talking about WizKids, the American action series. But we're not actually talking about the TV series. Ben, we're talking about the books it was based on, aren't we? Well, yeah, I did wonder what that clip was. I'd never see, never uh, seen the WizKids guy. You didn't know there was a series. You see, I only knew it was the programme. I didn't know there were the books. When we were discussing in the previous episode about when the book fairs would come, these were um, Peter Eldin's book. There was more than just the WizKids handbook. There was the Secret Agent's handbook, Trickster's handbook, which I actually have in my hand right now, the Explorer's handbook, Spooksters Handbook, Millionaire's Handbook, Magic Handbook, Young Road Traveller's Handbook, Dog Botherer's Handbook. But there were like little guides of little tricks and tips and stuff you can do. Jokes and, well, as, as the front cover of this one says, 200 tricks, jokes and stunts to fool your friend. And this particular book is from 1980. Fortune Telling Banana. You will need a banana. Ask the banana a question. Now cut off the end furthest from the stalk and look at the centre of the pulp. If it looks like a Y, the answer to the question is yes. If it looks like a dot, the answer is no. If the central dark portion of the banana is any other shape, then your answer is maybe. Okay, so apparently Peter Eldin was actually a magician by trade. So he's pulling a lot of rabbits out of hats in terms of getting content for the book, isn't he? The next one is floating sausage. And what you'll need for this one is two fingers. Hold the tips of your four fingers together in front of your eyes. Look beyond your fingers and it will look like there's a floating sausage. So were there any other series of books like this that you had? Because I seem to remember there were quite a few kind of, you know, um, zany times for kids book series in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, there used to be the Filer Fun, which is kind of, they're kind of an updating of these books in some way, but looked like a Filofax. So it had little fake tabs down the side and a, a full leather cover <laughs> and it had like puzzles and games and stuff like that but yeah there was definitely a, a mania for sort of i suppose there still is kids will always be fascinated by practical jokes and tricks and stuff like that and i suppose that's i think the surviving comics that are about now have sort of invested heavily in that sort of thing as well. But I suppose it does come from reading Roger the Dodger and Minnie the Minx. You know, it was harmless japes and wheezes. Well, I remember, I'm fairly certain I had around the time a game for a laugh at Jeremy Beadle, what, of, you know, tricks you can play. Sort of like he had an introduction with, you know, like a sort of a charcoal drawing of him and a speech bubble saying, <laughs> remember, a practical joke is only funny if the victim laughs as well. Which is kind of pertinent advice, really. It is, that's cracking advice for life, that. I mean, that's why I love Beedlebum. I genuinely never felt his stuff was very nasty. No, no, yeah. And if anyone wants to have any words, her, her, Jeremy Beadle, come to me and Tim, because we'll set you right. Get you a copy of Beadle's Miscellany, one of the most fascinating books ever written. It is, and I also would recommend on the sort of theme of children's books although you have to pay a fortune for it now we did a book called Rodney Rootle's Grown-Up Grappler and Other Kids' Inventions Banned by Adults. Which is a book about children who invented bizarre gadgets, like about how you could tell people's personality with like a sort of calculator-style thing. And it was absolutely brilliant. It was like all completely fictional, but it was hilarious. Do you see this book being uh, printed from 1980 just pre-states the calculator fun era? What's on the cover of it? Is it like kind of like the Supergram book covers? That's what I'm picturing. 
that sort of illustration. This particular one has got a man peeping out of a blindfold, which is about to pull a, a sheet on, and there's a lot of stacked up crockery and plates and saucepans and stuff. I think the idea is he's, he's going to cheat and not really... I don't Right, I'll read you another one. Funnel fun. You'll need a funnel or cone of paper. So instantly it could be a cone of paper fun. Light a candle and hand the funnel to your victim. Blow the candle out by blowing through the funnel. Most people will now put the narrow end of the funnel to their mouth and blow. It will never go out. Then you turn it round. It will blow out. A lot of fun. I'm, I'm disputing the repeated use of the word fun in that. The interesting thing is that one thing I found out since WizKids Guide was mentioned a couple of weeks ago was, that, you know, if you ever read Kenneth Williams' diaries, you know the way he's got that thing of he will start off saying, you know, when he starts a new programme or film, he'll say, oh, it's really exciting and everyone's so lovely and they're all being really nice to me. I think it's really a big success. And the next one they'll go, I hate them all. But WizKids Guide used to have a lot of fondness for because he was in the TV version. So how did the TV version? Well, that sounded like the school kids, but obviously not not school. Yeah, there were. It was like him, Arthur Mullard, a couple of other people, like that, dressed in like school uniforms and that, explaining how to do basically the same sort of stuff as in the books, with a kind of comedy sketch edge to it. And in the middle, the dingbats would show up, who nobody remembers them. What's the dingbats? They were these acrobats who there was like the one dressed as Batman, one as Groucho Marx. I don't think they got the like clearance for any of these, and they do like comedy things with a vaulting horse and so on. Be like, one would be trying to arrest the others and they'd all vault away from him. They used to show up on everything. Next item I've chosen is comedy things with a vaulting... Uh, no, maybe not. Well, the next item that you've chosen, for all I know, they might actually have had a song called that. Here's a bit of one of their songs. that and what's that called comedy bits with a vaulting horse sadly not that was hear the air by moho bishopi no bells rung then absolutely not which is weird because you know i remember manifesto and tool and bands like that yeah your manifesto and tool the main bands uh, you remember from the 90s moho bishopi were one of those bands that seemed to be on supporting a lot of people between 2000 and 2001. I saw them a number of times and so much, I liked them so much, I ended up going to their gigs and they definitely played Leeds a lot, although they were a Welsh band. Uh, and I'm just going to hear the sort of nasal-voiced indie rock, but they always seem to have something about them, just something a bit more interesting. There's a song called Name for Nameless Things and, uh, and they seem to have this like... Basically, I think the Kaiser Chiefs did their thing a few years later and people went oh that's good slightly sardonic lyrics about relationships and being an outsider and stuff like that well as well as arriving too early for that were they a bit too late for the you know when Welsh indie rock was cool in the late 90s you know with your Catatonia Super Fairy Animals 
better than you presenting the evening session, which nobody remembers. The one album, Vague US or Vegas, came out in 2001 on V2. It didn't do very well. I think it got to about 68 or 9 or something. But they seem to be one of those bands that, I think partly it's the name, Moho Bishopi, which apparently I seem to recall is it's a Hawaiian extinct bird, which the singer said. I'm fairly sure the story goes, he was reading the Reader's Digest at the doctor's or dentist or something like that, and he went, ooh, that's a bit of a mad name. I'm a bit of a mad bloke. I'll use that. I mean, I like poppy punky stuff anyway, but that was the era where new metal was taking over, and... You know, I wasn't like, grr, I hate all the new metals. But there was not a lot of other... I would say you had System of a Down, who was slightly interesting, and the rest were all fairly chugging away, shouting, Daddy wouldn't buy me a bow, I'll cut yourself. There wasn't a lot of fun in those days, really, was there? Well, not in music or in TV or films, really. It all seemed to get a bit... It was all a bit more about the technology than the actual content, wasn't it? I know that's a bit of a a ham-fisted way of putting it, but kind of felt as though people put the actual enjoyment of things second for a bit. I'm not making that point very well at all, am I? No, I get I get you exactly. I mean, don't forget it's kind of the return to stadium rock, for example, you know, with Coldplay, and a lot of bands kind of, I don't know, they didn't seem to be, the kind of joy seemed to have gone. And yet, if you look at what got to number one around that time, you know, it wasn't me, Bob the Builder. <laughs> it seemed to be when people put out actually silly things, I feel my yeah, I'll have this instead. Enemies' top singles of 2000, I've just looked up. They're struggling. I mean, there's some good stuff in there. Sugar Babes, Overload. Number one is Real Slim Shady, because Eminem did certainly be the only thing vaguely different. Then Coldplay, Khalees, Queens of Stone Age, Lamb Chop. And then they've gone sort of for Spiller, Groove Jet. They're clearly desperate for something a bit different. The All Saints are in there, and I'm not saying that just, oh, and then Pop was best, but I just think this kind of... They were more fun in an era of things that weren't particularly fun. Well, what's startling me is, you know, the first second I saw the name Moho Bishopi, I thought, yeah, there'll be a Peel session or two there. I've looked in the Peel sessions, I've looked online... They don't appear to have done one. And that is astonishing. I would have thought he would have been all over them, but obviously not. Baffling time for music and bands like King Adora and My Vitriol and Clint Boone Experience and Moho Bishoping definitely got me through a, when I needed a bit of fun. Well, speaking of fun in a dreary fashion era, here's a film that kind of just basically nails that. Columbia Pictures invites you... You shouldn't do this, Rana. ...to a new kind of night on the town... I think I feel something. Go! Don't do it. Stuck. Are you a virgin? What? Wow, bang surprise. No. Yo, man, I told you my mother's mother's mother was Your black. Mother, if you were mother? any less black, you would be clear. Shut up! Get ready for the year's hippest, edgiest comedy. You stole a car, shot a bouncer, had sex with two women. That will define the generation. It really didn't go as bad as it could have. British ass happy now. It's alright, I'm okay. Go. So. Hmm, what are we doing tomorrow? 
Okay, that's your last choice, Ben. Now, I've seen this. I'm not sure that many people listening will have done. Would you like to tell us what the film is, please? It is a film from 1999 called Go, which was Doug Lyman directed that, and it was his follow-up to Swingers, which, of course, Swingers was one of those slow burners which everyone ended up absolutely loving or rating. And so I, I still, you don't hear it mentioned as much now, but it's definitely still the big ones, isn't it? Well, that's something that's changed, really, was that around that whole time, there was still that lingering sort of post-Tarantino thing of here is the film we all like now. You know, it seemed to go from film to film to film to film. That seemed to stop happening a while back. But definitely, Swingers was part of that. And I think people expected Go to catch on in the same way. I don't think it quite did, did it? You mentioned Tarantino. Go is effectively a teenage pulp fiction in its own head. I enjoyed it. It's fun. And it's it basically there's three plots and they all kind of tie into each other eventually. And you know, it's a crime. Caper. Yeah, it's all right. It's interesting, but I can see why Doug Lehman went. You know what? I'm going to make the Bourne films instead. <laughs> but uh, the reason I picked this in particular is two reasons. One, it stars Desmond Askew, who was in Grange Hill, played Richard in, what? The, in, in, in the early nineties. Really? Yeah. I had never realised that was him. Yeah, alongside Katie Holmes and uh, Breckin Meyer and all those types of people. Uh, Melissa McCarthy's film debut, apparently. And there's a piece of music called New by the American rock band No Doubt. But I love that song. It's probably not a very uh, popular thing to announce love for No Doubt. And indeed, most of the stuff they did was boring college rock shit, but I do particularly enjoy New. And I remember I went to see it at my local cinema with my girlfriend at the time about six friends and it was like it, we just felt cool it felt like we were going to see a cool film and then the, it, you know knew by no doubt we're playing over the credits and we all liked it and it was just like hey cool we've been to this cool film and a cool crime caper and we're all together you know we're all sort of we're all sort of about 18 17 18 it was like when dvd was first thing it seemed to be one of those dvds that was around a lot well I, my main memory is of it always being in the three for ten HMP permanently and then it just seemed to disappear which is weird because it's still got a pretty I mean not the biggest cast but I mean there's people like Katie Holmes and Sarah Polly and obviously Melissa McCarthy's in it I dare say it'd be sold as a Melissa McCarthy film now even though she's in it for about <laughs> two minutes, I suspect. Well, to be honest with you, I do think part of the reason is that by then, people start to get sick of that kind of film, regardless of whether they're any good or not. I mean, you know, there was the whole Adam and Joe doing the Speeding on the Needle Bliss parody where they <laughs> pretended they were making one of those films. There were things like, what's the one with the Bell and Sebastian soundtrack where it was really like, you like this? And you story got about telling. five minutes in and thought, no, I don't like this at all. Storytelling, yeah. Well, it doesn't have a Bell and Sebastian soundtrack famously because they recorded it and then they used about three seconds of it. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll go through the Go soundtrack for you. It's the most 1999 thing in the world. So obviously we've got the No Doubt song. Steal My Sunshine by Len. Natalie and Brulia. Gangster Trippin's on there. Lion Rock. BT, Air, Left Field, Eagle Eye Cherry. It's kind of similar to human traffic. It's about drugs. It's about people like having fun, but without any of the realism of human traffic. Was it as well? Mentioning the soundtrack, was it one of those films where the soundtrack was pretty much thought of independently of the film, do you think? Well, you know, it's got no real relation to what's going on. I mean, I always think, what's the, what's the early Shane Meadows one? Is it 24-7? Where everyone had the soundtrack and no one had seen the film. 
<laughs> the thing I mainly remember in 24 7 is I believe that's what was on the beanie that Bob Hoskins, played by Adam Buxton, <laughs> is, is wearing in the Bobo song. And so, so Go definitely represents a period where films seem to be slightly more aimed at me. And I was kind of the market, and it was like, people want me in their cinemas. And of course, the problem with that is that people like me would prefer to wait for it to come out on DVD. And even better, got in the 2000s, just pirate instead. <laughs> so that's probably why that sort of thing died off. I don't know. It probably would have been cheaper to get it in the 3 for 10 than it would to have downloaded this at that point, really. You know, the dial-up charges. Well, yeah. Okay, well, Ben, thanks for all of that, but I believe we might not even have seen the last of you on this show, but I'll leave that for everyone to find out. Anyway, until next time, bye! by Tim Worthington. The story of comedy at BBC Radio 1 from Kenny Everett to Chris Morris and beyond. For more details, timworthington.blogspot.co.uk.